In this episode, we speak with Andrea Auerbach, partner and head of global private investments at Cambridge Associates. Cambridge Associates is a global investment firm that works with endowments, foundations, healthcare systems, pension plans, and private clients to implement and manage custom investment portfolios. With 50 years of institutional investing experience, the firm delivers a range of portfolio management services, including outsourced CIO, non-discretionary portfolio management, staff extension, and asset class mandates. Andrea leads a 50-person team sourcing and underwriting private equity, growth equity, distressed, and venture capital funds, as well as direct, co-investment, and secondary investment opportunities, resulting in over $10 billion being invested annually across these strategies. She is also a member of the firm's leadership team and leads CA's discretionary private investments practice. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's it's really a delight to be with you and an honor uh, to have this conversation. It's wonderful to connect and talk about growth equity with you, RJ. I mean, given everything you've done for the space over the years, happy to be here. Appreciate that. Where I thought we'd kick off is we were just talking about the term growth equity and how maybe others have been adopting the term, even though they may not be straight down the fairway. And I did have a distinct conversation with what I'll call a, a venture investor who was clearly venture, but trying to adopt the growth equity nomenclature and then kind of maybe made a hybrid of venture growth, but really trying to be seen as growth equity. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in the market? Absolutely. About a decade ago, we put out our version of what we believed was growth equity. Okay. And if I go back really basic, like these are the core fundamentals of what we see as growth equity. At the time, and it has evolved, it has evolved, but at the time, founder-owned business, no prior institutional investment, that's a little bit of a wiggle room in the moment, proven business model, so clear unit economics, right? Clear unit economics, not shaky unit economics, very clear unit economics. Substantial organic revenue growth, that's obviously why we're all here, it's about growth, right? And then EBITDA positive or expected to be so within about 18 months. And that was, let's call that classic growth equity definition circa 2013, actually, is when we put our paper out into the world. Fast forward 10 years, growth equity it has become ubiquitous. And I think there are many reasons why that is, right? So growth equity, as you very well know, captures some of the upside of venture because these are growing companies growing faster than their peers in sectors growing faster than the overall economy. And they're early in their scaling. So there's an opportunity to capture some outsized performance relative to say a leveraged buyout on the other side. But because these businesses have been primarily bootstrapped, there's not so much venture in the stack, the valuations are more tethered to their actual performance rather than a pre-money valuation, RJ, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the current environment, what we're watching is Everything seems to be painted with a growth equity brush and you have to look closer. You have to kind of 
do some bushwhacking and get to the truth, the ground truth of what is this company? Does it have an actual proven business model? Is it actually, if you shut off the growth tap, if you shut off the reinvesting, would it really become profitable quickly or will it not? And I would say the other thing that I think is a clear delineator for not growth equity is if there are multiple rounds of VC in the stack beneath you. And I know as you make your way in the industry, you probably see many different flavors of growth equity, but I feel there's really one. And maybe we allow one standard deviation on the other side and we can unpack where I think that boundary is. But maybe does that resonate with you as well? I think we're 100% aligned with the definition of growth equity. And it reminds me of this, as, as I was referring to this conversation I had with a venture investor, he took a look at some of the firms we, we tend to feature and he says, you know, you really want to look at these. And he was pointing to the venture space that are advertising themselves as growth equity. I was like, no, no, no. I guess that is a version of maybe what you're thinking about as growth equity, but that's not the traditional growth equity. Now, what characteristics do you typically look for in a great growth equity firm? Characteristics of a great growth equity firm, there's so many, but um, as investors at CA, we're constantly scouring the universe looking for great growth equity firms. It's expanded a little bit over the years, but obviously you got to find what you want to invest in. And many growth equity companies, they may not necessarily need your capital, right? And so you have to go find them and you have to be thoughtful about what you're looking for. Maybe be very strong in a, a specific sector, subsector, or theme to be able to present your best self as a GP to the company that you would like to make an investment in, right? And so sourcing, I think, is very, very important for any type of manager, but within the growth equity context, you have to go find them. They're hiding in the wild. They're growing, they're growing rapidly. And your job is to find them at your right inflection point as an investor, right? And then a, another element is typically, typically, we, you know, we were talking about growth buyouts before. Typically, you are a minority investor. You are partner to this management team. And so you need to demonstrate you have the chops to actually be a partner and be able to win their hearts and minds to convince them maybe of an approach that you think is better for the business overall to help grow the pie for everyone to be successful. And that also relates, RJ, to what types of value add can you bring to the table in a non-invasive way, like teach them to fish, so to speak, right? Give them the help, assistance, and frameworks that they need to be able to scale their business successfully. And then you as a GP, can you lather, rinse, repeat that across your portfolio? All of that's really hard and time intensive and requires dedicated individuals who really want to do this and want the companies in which they invest to succeed. There are some other elements around that, but I think those are, are the basics. We've had uh, numerous conversations, candid conversations with GPs and certain partners within firms. And, you know, in some cases, firms don't necessarily take the time to develop strong cultures. And you will sometimes find that there's spin outs. So there'll be two or three mm -hmm. partners that will kind of go off and start their own thing without it being a kind of a mutual decision. Or, or maybe I should better phrase it as having it be a collaborative kind of discussion. I wanted to get your take on culture. And if you look into that and kind of what you might look for or when you might quickly see this is unique, the way they've kind of set their firm up is really unique. 
as part of what we do at, at Cambridge, we underwrite dozens of firms every year. And a large portion of what we underwrite are actually first-time funds, RJ. And a lot of first-time funds are spin-outs. There are folks who decided to just pack up their kit and set out on their own. And culture has a lot to do with that. Lots of things do, right? Lots of things do. So the way I think about it is, this is Andrea's theory, Andrea's theory. Everyone as an investor has a certain true north. And it might be lower middle market companies between three and five million of revenue growing at 50% with a skeleton management team in SaaS. Like that literally could be someone's investor true north. And another one's could be, I like investing in companies that are growing at 15% top line, 300 million in revenue. So heading towards the too big to fail, if we could use that phrase here with a full set of management and we're just doing tweaks around the edges, right? So I feel like everyone has a true north as an investor. And when we see spinouts, culture can definitely play a role in that. As firms mature and they grow, they can go past that true north strike zone for a specific investor type that as firms age, and firms are living, breathing organizations, right, RJ? Like they can easily age 10 years in two funds and everything can change the motivations of the individuals, who's senior, who's doing what, all these folks at these firms are ambitious, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're like, well, we're not going in the direction I think we should be going in, or I've focused my entire career to date on this space, and now you're telling me I can't do this space anymore because we're too big now? I'm just going to go. Is that okay? And so we often do look at spinouts, and the culture is, you know, it's a hard thing to quantify. I would say we do a number of different things at CA about this. Quick ways to get at culture as a fund investor, talking about ownership, economics, and decision rights. That's the leading indicator of how you're really set up. Whatever you're going to tell me is great, and we're going to have lots of conversations as we're thinking about you know, making an investment in you, but then we're going to be like, okay, we're going to need some specifics here and then see if they match up, right? Mm -hmm. and, and other ways we sort of test on culture. And by the way, we meet with managers many, many times. We've often known them before they've spun out. And then we're meeting with them over a period of time to really see how consistent and gelled the team is going to be. And that team gelling is that intangible, right? Are they able to finish each other's sentences? Do they know each other's deals? Do they have that energy that you're going to need to lift your new firm off the ground? We've backed some growth equity firms that have taken a while to get their first fundraised. And that's tough. Like you've got to stick together for maybe even two years before you mm -hmm. really know you have something. Mm -hmm. That's a crucible, RJ. That is a crucible that you have to get a gauntlet to get through. And that can forge a team in a culture or it can, unfortunately, it could, it could fracture, right? And so these are all the things that, that we do as fund investors is we're constantly testing and monitoring out in the wild. It's like out in the wild, we're looking at these folks, if that's helpful. Mm -hmm. And as an external observer and someone who talks to growth equity and private equity firms, what I've seen several times is when the firm founder gets a little bit older, maybe into you know mid-60s, 70s, and seems to be just still holding on tightly and not allowing the others who've been there for a while to really rise up and maybe take the helm or take more ownership. And invariably, it results in fracturing kind of the firm leadership. What do you think are ways to kind of mitigate that? Well, you need a plan. <laughs> you right. need to make a plan, right? 
I think there are two components that are important, being self-aware and honoring that you have actually built something as a firm founder that is actually going to survive you and planning for those moments. There are some firms that do an incredibly good job of that. It's well-known, it's communicated actively, it's forecasted, you know, the LPs are kept up to date. And then others, like you've described, RJ, you can almost predict when a spin-out is about to happen because you can see you have a founder who may no longer be active, who may have the majority of the economics, who is just sheltering in place and waiting and maybe not thinking through this thing that I've built is going to survive me. And I need to start acting like that and making contingency plans because I'm not going to be here forever. I remember, you know, there's that phrase like Americans will work to be the, the richest people in the cemetery, right? And so there's a little bit of that, go get it. It's never stop stopping or whatever. And I think about that a lot in the field that we're in because you do see that out there. I think the other thing that's interesting and controversial from an LP perspective is that you do have these GP staking funds, which I think the other factor that some of these founders might be thinking is, I built this whole thing and how do I transfer this to the next generation because they can't afford it, what I think it's worth. And then you might have an option given the fund finance market that's active today and it's evolved quite a bit to maybe find a way to acquire that interest, usher in the next generation, from an LP perspective, you know, we can unpack that. There's some questions we would have around that activity, but I do feel it's come of age because it is a way to help increase that transition. But the first ingredient is self-awareness, mm -hmm. self-awareness. The other thing I had a question about was, you know, as we think about here at GrowthCap and we look at a lot of different firms and try to analyze them and see who we think are really kind of in that top tier I've had conversations with other GPs and we talk about, okay, what makes for an excellent, durable, long-term great firm? And ultimately my short answer, and this was probably overly simplistic, was, you know, I think the best firms are run by really good people. Like I think they're in the industry long enough, they develop a reputation of being good to work with and trustworthy. And that carries weight over a long period of time. I haven't tested that. Maybe it's like an ideal, something I'd like to see. What do you think? Well, RJ, when you said, you know, good people, I think that translates to me to character and integrity. Right. That's really what you're right. And you really see uh, from our perspective at CA, when we're making decisions about making an investment in a growth equity firm or any firm for that matter, we do meet them over multiple timeframes. We try to see them at their best and at their worst, to see how consistent they are and how they bring themselves to interacting with us, right? And so we're looking for character. We are looking for integrity in terms of, yes, we took a write down. Yes, that was a loss. I'm going to own that. I'm going to own that in front of you, right? Like, don't look over here at our challenged companies, but being willing to say, look, you know, some of our companies aren't doing so well, and I want to tell you why, and I want to tell you what we're going to do about it, right? or departures. And so we're looking for character and integrity. And the other thing that we do to test for that, as anyone would, is we do a lot of referencing around these GPs, right? Talking to the CEOs of their companies, exited, existing, active, challenged, and hearing how this person that we're meeting with brings themselves to the other side of their business, which is how are they interacting with the CEOs of the companies in which they've invested? 
and how they delivered on that. And so I think it's really hard to escape the mosaic that can get created by an interested party like Cambridge Associates, because we are trying to do a 360 view of what are we going to get because we'll be invested for 12 years, right? So, I mean, you can't do enough homework on the way in and do enough close observation. And so I would like to believe that folks who bring themselves to the growth investment space with integrity and are good people in all the walks that they have to walk as an investor will pay dividends in terms of winning that deal over others, in terms of gaining the trust of a management team that actually owns the majority of the company to get them to maybe try it your way based on all the pattern recognition and experience you bring as a GP to the growth space, right? Mm -hmm. So I believe in the expected outcomes of being a good person. I believe in that. And we try to quantify it, but it's it's hard as you're asking that question. I'm like, that's a hard question to answer, RJ. Right. You know, one other area that's also a little bit murky is ESG and the degree to which firms kind of adopt ESG practices and yep. their involvement in it. How do you view it? And what would you prefer to see for firms to undertake? In the growth space, it's such an interesting question. I've definitely had conversations with growth equity GPs several years back. And I've said, you know, because at Cambridge, we explore ESG and all the managers that we're contemplating investing with. Growth equity does not get a buy on that concept. And so we do talk about it with the managers. We've been doing this for years. And But I remember one growth equity GP, I said, look, we, I want to talk with you about you know your ESG policy. And their response was, we don't need one. I was like, well, why is that? And they're like, well, we invest in software companies. that doesn't, They don't hurt the environment. And I was like, you know, there's an S and a G in there, right? Like, you know, it's not just about E. There's an S and a G, right? And so you're like, let's unpack that for a few minutes. And so what I would say is appreciating every investor could have a different level of what they want to dial up or dial down from an E, S, and G perspective, right? From a Cambridge perspective, what we're looking for is a little bit of acknowledgement that these are areas that historically were considered externalities. If I just do the right kind of growth investing, the returns, everything, the integrity, the characters, all flows through to a positive return. But I would say as we're considering the implications of not having really good governance, of not encouraging, infusing other degrees of social elements, right, in terms of maybe having a, a diverse workforce from a perspective experience walk of life could actually result in better business, better business models, better business outcomes, representing and reflecting the clients that you're actually trying to attract, all of those elements. And so pulling those more into an investment process and stopping for a second and contemplating them, because more of that is likely to have an impact going forward as well. Like I'm a Gen Xer, I swear I'm a Gen Xer. So I'm like the cynic who used to wear flannel, but we're dealing with Gen Zers now who have very different orientation and what they're going to expect from their service providers as they start to run businesses. And I think part of ESG is we need to think ahead. We need to look around corners and start incorporating that into what we do as investors, including growth equity investors. Now, you head up all of private investments globally. What is the most exciting area or where do you stop and think like this is an area that I think is going to be really important and it's one I want to go deep on and 
spend a lot of time in? I'd say the current theme that is moving through the shop and is sort of in the back of our heads these days is the application of AI, of course, right? I had to say that. Into so many different corners of strategies, how our company is able to utilize it. Are you as a manager finding ways to utilize it? We at Cambridge are exploring ways to utilize it for what we do at CA. And so that seems to be an interesting, exciting element. And if you think about what AI is already doing in the healthcare space, in terms of looking for solutions, rapidly processing information, looking for solutions where maybe a team of dedicated humans just couldn't possibly cover that degree of ground in that short a period of time, there's some really interesting developments which could really support the growth equity space in addition to other investment spaces. So that's just a broader theme that we're watching settle on, you know, watching it carefully, of course, but looking at it settle onto the investment space. I would continue to say, though, growth equity, if you think about it, and we think about it a lot. So RJ, we know that companies that are growing their revenues by 20% or more at the time at which they're exited from a growth equity shop, what have you, over half of those deals are realized at a 3x or better. And so we married our operating metric database with our returns database. And we've obviously been not using AI just yet, but we've been looking for patterns. And that's one we teased out some time ago. And what I would say is that growth equity itself, it's still a small portion of where investment dollars go today. And and when we looked at fundraising by asset class between venture buyout and growth equity, growth equity is still only 15% of overall fundraising. It's this little wedge, right? The little, little wedge. But if you think about what these managers are looking for, and they're constantly iterating and improving how they're looking for them, what they're going to do with these companies. And when you think about that growth statistic of generating 20% or more revenue at exit, over half those deals are a 3x or better, which is a top quartile performance. If we have the data, we know this. And so growth equity continues to be a space that we're very excited about. Now, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, is it the growth equity we're talking about, you and I, mm -hmm. and not this like, there are five rounds sitting underneath this air quote, growth equity investment. Oh, and it's not profitable and it's not really going to be that's not a growth equity investment, that's a venture investment. And so as investors, you need to be very clear on what you're investing in. And that's part of what we do at CA is make sure we're all clear on this is an actual growth equity strategy versus something masquerading as a growth equity strategy. Now, talking about the other side of the equation, you know, where the capital comes from, you know, one of the spaces that's been really interesting to watch is the family office space and how that has been evolving and growing. Have you been kind of seeing that be really kind of like a ripe area to introduce more growth investing into? Yes. In fact, at Cambridge, we work with and invest on behalf of both endowments and foundations, as many people think of us. We also work with pension sovereign wealth funds and families, actually. Families, institutionally sized families are a big part of who we work with at Cambridge Associates. What we've seen, because growth equity has, as we mentioned, a little more of the upside than buyouts and less loss than venture capital. So it's clearly a way to gain access to the innovation economy, but at a slightly different stage and really earn that return. So we have seen family offices move in and expand an allocation, a dedicated allocation to growth equity. What I've observed is all families are different. 
Mm-hmm. And it may depend on how they have set up their office or, or maybe the source of their wealth. Is it an industrial company? Is it a venture company? And that may inform their level of comfort in investing in growth equity per se. The other thing that's been happening quite a bit is, you know, co-investment is a fairly significant part of the investment industry today. And we have a co-investment practice and we have clients evaluating co-investment as well. And growth equity is interesting because it can be break even profitable. And so again, as a family office or as a co-investor, being comfortable that the manager and the company can achieve its targets, come into profitability and keep going on a path to a productive exit. From an underwriting perspective, that's a little harder than evaluating a buyout. Mm -hmm. And so there's some interesting wrinkles around how many other investors are coming towards growth equity and how they're embedding an understanding of it because it's not venture and it's not buyout but it's got elements of both and kind of being able to parse that and our family clients have definitely embraced it as a strategy Mm -hmm. we're coming up on time i do like to close with a couple questions one is can you tell us about a person who has had a profound influence on you a single person would be really hard but what i would Mm -hmm. say rj Having been in the private investment space for a couple decades, which I don't really like thinking about that. It just makes (laughs) me feel very old. But the opportunity that I've had to basically have a master class talking to managing general partners who have started firms and grown them substantially, who have started firms and maybe gone sideways and then come back. I feel like the most influence I've had is the 10,000 hours I've been able to spend talking to folks like yourself, getting your experience, and really getting to pepper these folks who have dedicated their lives to their investment strategies to why, how, and it's created an amalgam. So to narrow it down to one person besides my mom Mm -hmm. would be really tricky. (laughs) It would be really tricky to do, but it's been a masterclass. I've had ringside seats for a long time, and I, I really relish being at ringside is what I would say. Well, one thing is you've done very well in your career, and I think you have a a way of being your demeanor, I think, is conducive to doing well, you know, just, you know, working collaboratively. Any tips for others that are aspiring to rise through the ranks in the investment space? That's an interesting question. I would say, and I'd be curious to get your take on this, RJ, there's really no balance, right? There's no real balance to how you do things. And so what I've tended to do myself is go deep in short bursts. So if someone's just starting out, lose yourself in your work in a short burst. Don't lose yourself for 10 years. That's not a good path. (laughs) But if you lose yourself, you go deep and you really immerse yourself in something for three months on a deal, six months on a project, you expand fully into something you've been assigned, then you should come away with a lot more knowledge than you would have thought. And also a sense of, did you really like that? And that may help take you to the next thing that you would like to truly immerse yourself in. Because when I reflect on what I've done as an investor over my career, that's kind of how I've done it. I said yes a lot early on, right? Yes, like, yeah, I'll I'll try that. Sure, yeah, I'll help you with that. Said yes a lot and then was willing to try things intensely for short periods of time and then came out of that with a lot more to work with, I would say. That's just one person's observation. That's a great insight. Okay, last question. Can you tell us about a charity cause or other endeavor that you're passionate about? Sure, sure. 
more information about me. I have four brothers. I grew up with four brothers. I'm the only daughter. And I was fortunate enough to earn a scholarship to a Smith College, which is a all women's college in Western Massachusetts, where I'm, I'm from Massachusetts. And I now have at this stage in my career and where I am in life, I'm able to give back to the college, which honestly really kind of put me on this path. Like I was recruited into a leveraged buyout firm from Smith College, like at graduation, crazy town, right? Didn't even know what an LBO was, RJ, at the time, right? I do now. I can assure you I do now. <laughs> and so I'm a trustee and I'm involved in the college and really happy to support the mission of the school. And I'm back frequently. I'm actually teaching a class there next month on private equity and venture capital and growth equity. So that's one way I'm trying to give back to a community that embraced me a long time ago and, and really put me on the path that I've, I've been able to be on. So that's one. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Andrea, I want to thank you again for taking the time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Appreciate the time, RJ. Really took away some insights to use in my day job. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. 